So I think one of the weirdest trends that I've seen in the church in my lifetime, and there have been quite a few, is the fairly recent trend of men, often ministers or worship leaders or even missionaries, to point out to an entire group of people their quote-unquote smoking hot wife. Am I the only one who gets really uncomfortable when this sort of thing happens? I've been in the group way too many times. Hey, let's give a hand for my smoking hot wife. And she's like, oh, I wish I could just be sucked into the earth and I'm so embarrassed right now. Uh, Plaster a smile on. And I'm torn between, you know, I'm glad that you are very attracted to your wife. I'm very attracted to my own wife. But I'm not looping everyone in on the details of that because that's just, that's weird. And yet on Twitter, right? Servant of Jesus, uh, husband of smoking hot, you know, at pastor's wife, one, two, three, four, or whatever. And, and at conferences, at gatherings. In fact, it, it, I'm not alone here. Christianity Today, eight years ago, actually had a, an article about this saying this is probably behavior that the, the world is looking at us and sort of seeing belittling language, demeaning language. And then three years later, Relevant Magazine, which is like Christianity Today, only more relevant, uh, they had an article called, Okay, Let's Stop With All The Talk About Smoking Hot Wives. They, they also see the kind of devaluing of women in it and an odd kind of invitation by the speaker for everyone to view his wife in that way, through that lens. And I find it unpastoral, but I also think it's almost anti-biblical. First of all, when you look through, you read all the church fathers, you read all the letters of all the apostles gathered in the New Testament, you read all of the prophets, I can say confidently there are zero references to any of their smoking hot wives. And that there is, in fact, in all of the Scripture, only one similar situation in which someone calls this kind of attention to his wife or attempts to, and it's here in Esther 1, and it's not a good thing. And it doesn't end well. In the first dozen verses of this book, we are seeing a ridiculously over-the-top illustration of this great emperor, King Ahasuerus's seemingly endless sovereignty and might, But now we will see in this passage that it has its limits. And he really sets himself up in this way. In verse 9, Vashti, the queen, enters the picture. And we read, Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. If you were with us last week, you, you heard about how over-the-top and resplendent this crazy six-month-long party was. There's descriptions like some lifestyle magazine about what kind of draperies and mosaics and all this stuff. Everyone had a golden goblet. No two were exactly alike. They were all unique, and everyone could drink as much as they wanted. There's a big party for princes and military officials. And then there's a week-long party just for, for everybody. And Queen Vashti also hosted a feast for the women in her palace. Now, we don't know exactly what that feast was like. For all we know, it was just as ostentatious as Ahasuerus's, but it seems that the text in how it describes the party is trying to kind of insulate Vashti from the the foolish excess and drunken debauchery that's going on in the king's gathering. And we also know that whatever's going on in the queen's party she has her wits about her. She still has her head. 
she hasn't become drunk with much wine. Now, Vashti, the word Vashti means best or beloved or maybe desired. It is likely a title, not her given name, and we don't know a lot about her. And we're not going to hear any more about her after this week uh, other than one detail that you already know, that because of what happens in this passage, she is banished. If you didn't already know that, I am sorry I spoiled it for you. But here we have her at the end of a 187-day series of parties, and she is over here doing what a queen ought to do, and seemingly doing it with integrity, and with honor, and with class. And over in the other room, the king, his heart, we're told, is good. And you say, what do you mean by that? Well, that's quite woodenly what it says, that his heart was good, his, his lave was tove with much wine. And it means his heart is merry, as the ESV puts it, or as the NIV says, his spirits are high with wine. But I think it's interesting that it says, woodenly, his heart is good, because his heart, we're going to find out, is anything but good. The wine is going to be talking, and it's going to be kind of stifling the wise and honorable parts of his mind and spirit and giving voice to the worst aspects of his character. And, you know, a, a, he's about to do something very stupid because he is not only drunk on power, but drunk also on alcohol. This is something that is a recurring theme throughout much of the Bible, and I would argue much of human history. Of course, everyone who drinks to excess doesn't always slide behind the wheel and kill someone or something, but nothing good ever comes out of drunkenness. I know of no good decision made by an inebriated person. I, I don't think that anyone would be able to convince me that it was a factor in someone doing something wise, deciding something wise, and yet the Persians thought that spirits brought them closer to the spirit world and gave them access to insights and wisdom that it was otherworldly and kind of on a plane above. All the same, if this guy would have thought to open up the words of a far greater king, Solomon, in Proverbs, we read, It is not for kings, O Lemuel, it is not for kings to drink wine, or for rulers to take strong drink, lest they drink and forget what has been decreed, and pervert the rights of all the afflicted. That's exactly what's happening here, and yet he has failed to understand what was known by the, the king of Israel, hundreds of years earlier. And this heart be, being merry and someone feeling good and feeling no pain and a sudden left turn bringing about tragedy is also a common motif throughout the Old Testament. In Judges 16, you remember when Samson, his eyes had been poked out, his hair had been cut, he'd been uh, made to grind uh, the wheel for the Philistines. And they gathered together, and they are feasting in their pagan way. And we read, And when their hearts were merry, they said, Call Samson, that he may entertain us. I don't know if you remember how that ended, but uh, squashed in a word. That was the end of their lives because of a foolish decision made under the merry heart brought on by much wine. In 1 Samuel 25, we have this story that I find so fascinating where we see that, that men are always going to have a weakness of overreacting in anger and, and overreacting in wrath. And that plays a, a role here in Esther as well. But that there are two different ways that it can play out. You see, David, he is rebuffed and kind of humiliated in front of his men by this guy Nabal, 
who says, I'm not going to give you anything for all of your keeping my house safe. I'm not going to even give you water for your men. Get out of here. You're nothing to me. And David is so angry. He's like, guys, strap on your swords. This guy's going to die. And then his wife comes out. Anyone remember her name? Abigail. What a wonderful, wonderful woman. Abigail comes out and she brings him gifts and she calms him down. She says, I appreciate you. We appreciate you. Please don't add evil to evil. And, and, and he's placated. He says, you're a good woman, a wise woman, and you kept me from doing something wicked. And he leaves. But then when she goes in to try and talk to her husband, she gets a much different response. Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of a king, and Nabal's heart was merry with him, for he was very drunk, and the next morning he was very dead. I don't know if you're seeing a, a pattern here, but nothing good is coming out of these things. We could talk about Daniel 5, Belshazzar, when he tastes the wine, and he says, oh, let's party like it's 1999, and they bring in all the vessels from the temple and start to defile them, and of course, that's the end of his reign as well. In comes the Persian uh, Empire. But now the king of the Persian Empire, likewise, is falling into the same trap. Into the New Testament, as we studied Ephesians just a few weeks ago, in Ephesians 5, we saw, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. This guy is not filled with the Spirit. He's filled with the spirits. And so he does this dumb thing of sending his eunuchs off to bring back Queen Vashti. He does not invite her. He doesn't say, ask her if she would come. He says, bring her. Like she's a, a thing to be passed around. Take her out of storage so we can all look at her. But, but bring her why? And this, I think, is where we really get to the heart of where Ahasuerus' heart lies in this moment. There's a word in the Hebrew, ra'ah. It means to display or to show something, like exhibit it. It's the word used in verse 4. For a full 180 days, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. Here in verse 11, that same word is used. He says that he wants them to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. Not consider how wise she is or how great her integrity, or her honor. No, let's just all have a good look at her. There's no distinction in his mind between displaying his material wealth and displaying his wife, whom he clearly sees as another possession. Over 187 days, he's been showing off all of his treasures, his luxuries, his opulent creature comforts, and the big finale was going to be, everybody, look at my smoking hot wife. Apparently, she's just another of his creature comforts, a creature to comfort him and gratify him and glorify him, even though as her husband and as the, her king, he should have been protecting her integrity, her modesty, and her dignity. He sends not one, but seven eunuchs. Everything's got to be big and over the top with this guy. Seven. He's into the numerology too. And he says, you go and get her. Now we've got to stop a moment and we've got to talk about eunuchs as uncomfortable as it might be. They show up a lot in the book of Esther. They're, they're kind of everywhere. The, the Hebrew word here is saris, sarisim in the plural. It's interesting in the Hebrew because it can mean a eunuch in the specific sense of someone who's been castrated uh, and is now in service, but it also can mean just an official. It, it kind of becomes a title. So, for example, when Philip sees the Ethiopian eunuch uh, who serves uh, Queen Candace of Ethiopia, and he stands on his 
chariot with him. And uh, they, they talk about the book of Isaiah, and he leads him to Christ, and then he baptizes him. We don't know if that guy was literally, physically a eunuch, or if that was just a title that he had because he was a trusted advisor. However, in Persia, it's almost certain that all of these eunuchs are physically now made eunuchs. It was a, a power move, obviously, that the king now has just absolute sovereignty and dominance over every part of this person's personhood. Now he can trust them, he thinks, in dealing with his wives and his concubines, his entire harem, because there's not going to be any funny business going on. Also, their identity will be completely wrapped up in him because he has cut off from them uh, any possibility of children or having in-laws or family ties that might be a conflict of interest and pull them this way or that. No, they are there for him. And it was actually thought of uh, as, as kind of making them a little less valuable to anyone else, and he could kill and replace them with impunity, and no one would raise much of a, a fuss. When rebellions were put down, the handsomest boys would be castrated and brought into service. That does raise the question, if you are a student of the Bible, did they do this with Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Because in that case, they found the most handsome boys without blemish. They brought them into the court, and they start making them learn all the custom and things. Probably. Maybe. We don't know for certain. It was Babylon, not Persia. It's very possible that that was the case, and that God was working through people who had been emasculated by this Gentile culture around them and does great things through them. But now we're getting off into the weeds. We do know this. When they went to see Esther, the seven eunuchs, they come with one message. Come with us. It's time to parade before the king's drunken party. And she gives them one answer. No. We don't know exactly what was said. There's very, very little dialogue in Esther. Most of it is, is tell, don't show. And there is very little direct quotation in Esther. But she says no. She refuses. We don't know why exactly. There are many guesses that people have suggested. There's a very, very old Jewish tradition that, quote, wearing her royal crown meant wearing only her royal crown. But that doesn't seem to be something that we can draw from the text. It's, it's, it's a very common claim, but I don't see it in the text itself. And the, the fact that the reason isn't given may be the point. Just like God seems to almost be absent from this book, his name is not invoked because it felt like he was absent in that moment, maybe her reason for refusing isn't given because it's immaterial in that world. Because it's irrelevant. His commands are all important. Her concerns don't matter. Maybe she had a stomach ache. Maybe she knew that this was a bad idea. Maybe, as even some have suggested, she's already pregnant with Artaxerxes, and she doesn't want to go and, and be ogled for that. What we do know, though, is that it's understandable. It's understandable that she doesn't want to leave her banquet to go and join his party. Plutarch gives us a little window into what this looked like. He says, The lawful wives of the Persian kings sit beside them at dinner and eat with them, but when the kings wish to be merry and get drunk, they send their wives away and send for their dancing girls and concubines. Insofar, they are right in what they do, because they do not concede any share in their licentiousness and debauchery to their wedded wives. So in case you thought that that was a horrible, messed up thing that was happening, Plutarch says they're, they're cool. Can you see how she would not want to take part in this? To be brought as the queen in her crown, 
As, as someone who, who should have a position of honor and integrity in amongst the concubines, etc., to be ogled by a bunch of drunken pigs? No. And so she says, no. I think she was likely trying to save both of them, she and Ahasuerus, from dishonor. But he just multiplies his own dishonor. Whatever the reason, she takes a very principled stand. We've got seven eunuchs there. It might seem like overkill to deliver one message, but they are no match for Queen Vashti. They cannot convince her. And these would be people who would know her probably better than anyone else. For her, it's fascinating these kinds of uh, reversals we see in the book of Esther. For her not to appear before the king when summoned is very dangerous. It requires great courage and bravery on her part. Later in the book, for Queen Esther to appear before the king unsummoned will be equally dangerous and require at least as much courage and bravery because they know who they're dealing with. And here in this case, his response is predictable. He has just spent six months and untold billions of dollars or derricks or whatever they spent back then trying to establish himself in the eyes of everyone as the most powerful man and maybe more than a mere man in the world. And it's all undone in a moment. Six months worth of work. It's like he's been blowing up a balloon for 27 weeks. And on the side of the balloon it says, Ain't I great? And just when he was about to tie it off and say, See my greatness? Vashti knocks it out of his hand and it goes over the whole room. And everyone sees it was just full of hot air the whole time. And so he flies into a drunken rage and his anger burns within him. We read, no command over his wife and no command over his emotions. This guy is humiliated. I like Matthew Henry's basic statement of fact here. He that had rule over 127 provinces had no rule over his own spirit. Rage comes up. It burns and it burns out of control. And rage is going to flare up several times here in the book of Esther. And it always leads to tragedy. And like drunkenness, it never leads to anything good. The most poisonous type of rage is the kind that burns on the fuel of ego and pride, ignited by some slight or insult. Just look at the comment section of anything online. And this was easily avoidable. Given to rage and drunk on wine, he's not about to be reasonable, but if he was in any kind of frame of mind to hear rather than just speak, perhaps one of his eunuchs could have said, this might be a bad idea. You've been drinking for 187 days, and you're about to make a huge mistake. I mean, Ahasuerus, from a biblical point of view, is far from being above reproach, but he's placed himself above reproach in the sense that he has placed himself above anyone rebuking him or speaking to him in any way but fawning. He's above all accountability in his mind, and he, he makes sure that remains the case by killing any of his subjects that so much as look at him sideways. And the danger even extends to his own wife. This makes me think of the difference between David's response to Abigail and Nabal's response to Abigail in that story I just referenced. One of them said, I am flying into a white-hot rage, and then heard words of wisdom, calm it down, from a woman and said, oh, you know what? You, you just stopped me from doing something wicked. I owe you one. By the way, then they get married later on. It's so cute. But... When Nabal hears, his vision, his thinking, everything is, is clouded by alcohol and anger, and he won't have it. He won't hear it. 
And so he puts himself outside of any kind of accountability. I think it's no coincidence that in Proverbs 20, verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. And the very next verse says, The terror of a king is like the growling of a lion. Whoever provokes him to anger forfeits his life. And Queen Vashti is lucky she did not forfeit her life here, or perhaps it's providence and not luck. A little later, Mordecai's simple refusal to bow to Haman in chapter 3 will threaten to be infinitely larger in blowback and forfeited lives. The entire nation is suddenly in danger. In both cases, the spurned party is filled with rage. Haman doesn't even need the wine. The rage is his drug of choice. His arrogance fuels it. Well, what happens here is the party seems to die all at once, not with a bang, but with a whimper. I'm assuming everyone kind of takes their, their party favor, one-of-a-kind gold goblet, and shuffles on home. This is our first piece of irony. After 187 days, these banquets kind of stacked on top of each other, which were designed to bring glory and make this king look larger than life, have made him look small and humiliated him. They were designed to bring about great national and international imperial solidarity and unity by showing his might and power, and they end with anger and division, schism in the ranks of the Persian palace. He hasn't done well. He's not a good king in any sense. And as Christians, we cannot help but contrast this man with Jesus Christ, our sovereign, the king of kings. And see that he is different at every turn. Aren't you glad you serve a king who doesn't view you the way Ahasuerus viewed not only his wife Vashti, but all of his subjects? Jesus makes it clear through his whole ministry that like God the Father in every word of prophecy throughout the Old Testament, he is on the side of the oppressed, of the poor, of the powerless. And our world is so broken that in the book of Esther, even the queen of almost the whole world can be filed under the category of oppressed in that moment. Men like Ahasuerus will dominate and belittle and objectify everyone around them, while Jesus, the king of kings, humbly walked the earth, showing everyone mercy and patience and love. Jesus gave true respect and dignity to everyone, including women, which to even say that now sounds a little bit odd, but in his day, he could have taken advantage of the fact that women were not seen as being on equal footing with men. He did not. He went against the grain in order to treat everyone. The, the prostitute who washed his feet, the notorious woman at the well, as a precious soul made in the image of God, of the same value as anyone else. Where those around him saw objects of scorn or lust, Jesus saw only the objects of God's agape love and made sure that they felt that love and knew that God loved them. Unlike Ahasuerus, Christ actually deserves to be eternally and unreservedly honored and glorified. We read about that in Revelation 5. 
Then I looked, John writes, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the God that we serve. Not the God who says, Go get my wife! And then gets angry when she wants nothing to do with him. And yet, even when we refuse to obey, when we spite him, when we all have fallen short and rebelled, he, he deals with us in long-suffering, slow to anger. Jesus' power actually is absolute, and he doesn't need to prove it. He spoke the cosmos into existence. That's probably proof enough. The wind and the waves, they obey him. The grave cannot hold him. And Jesus still does not think of his bride simply as a tool to drag out and increase his glory and nothing more, although he would have been within his rights to do so. Well, Ahasuerus has no concern for his bride whatsoever, except how she reflects on him. Christ came and suffered and died for his bride, even while we were sinners, rebelling and turning our backs to him. We are going to continue this comparison next week when we look at the king's response to all this and think of Christ's response to us, and probably in weeks following. But for now, let me just use this to kind of illustrate a theological issue that's so very important. You see, King Ahasuerus saw his wife's beauty as just another gift to him, something for him to use. In the book of Revelation, we see that the bride of Christ is presented as a bride adorned and beautiful for her bridegroom. But our beauty as the bride of Christ, the Holy Church, is not a gift to the king, but a gift from our king. A gift from our Savior. You see, this is two views of salvation. One says we have to kind of wash off all our own grime, get rid of all our own sins, deal with them somehow, pretty ourselves up, get some eunuchs, they're good at the makeovers, they do it throughout the entire book of Esther, get us nice and, and dolled up, this is most world religions, so that at the end I can present myself before God, whom I've offended with my life and my sin, and say, look how pretty I am now, and he'll go, pick, yeah, okay. Because that's the kind of king we expect him to be. That is not the gospel. The gospel says he looked at us and said, whoa, there is no one who's going to accept you as the, the bride of a king, so let me wash you. Let me make you new. In fact, I, I got to read once again, I haven't read it in a while, one of my favorite passages in all of the Old Testament. Ezekiel 16. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, Make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, Thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out in the open field, for you were abhorred on the day that you were born." And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood, live. I said to you, in your blood, live. 
I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your hair grown, yet you were naked and bare. And when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. And I made my vow to you and entered into covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood and anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine silk and covered you with silk and linen. And I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrists and a chain on your neck. And I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. He goes on and on to describe how he took an abandoned, unwanted, and rebellious child and made of her his beautiful bride. This is the picture we have of our relationship with our king. And what comfort that is. And yet even for those of us described in that passage, who've been washed in the blood and clothed in the spotless linen of his righteousness, we're often more like a Hasuerus than like Christ. I think it's fitting that the word Christ-like rolls right off the tongue. Well, the word Ahasuerus-like does not. Or even Xerxes-like. These things are kind of unnatural, and it should be unnatural if we are filled with the Spirit, if we are being made new. When defied or provoked or even humiliated, we often respond in a very Ahasuerus-like way. But how did Jesus respond in those times? with compassion, with empathy. It's odd to me, this, this past year, there was a debate all over the internet and amidst a lot of different kind of sects of Christianity about whether empathy is a sin. A lot of people saying, yes, empathy is a sin. What, what we have is two different things, and the world loves one of them, empathy, but we should be about sympathy. And you might be thinking those mean the same thing. Well, sympathy means to feel with Empathy means to feel in. And, and there were many, even some teachers that I respect, saying the world wants you to feel in rather than to maintain your objectivity and just feel for someone. And, and the illustration was if you saw someone sinking in quickstand, uh, the, the compassion, which also means to feel with, uh, would, or the sympathy would be to say, oh, I'm so sorry you're in that position, let me help you out. The empathy would be to jump in with both feet and now you're in there with them and you know exactly how they feel, but you can't help them. I think, by the way, either empathy or sympathy would be a move in the right direction for the church today in many ways. And I certainly think when we look at Jesus and what he did when he came down and dwelt amongst us, took on himself a human body and human nature, jumping in, as it were, with both feet so that he would feel with us and become one of us, didn't keep him from saying things like go and sin no more. Didn't make him tainted. It kept him perfectly man, perfectly God. And we look to him and say, how can we also enter into somebody's life, into their suffering and understand what they're going through without somehow owning their sin as our own or accepting it or affirming it? When we want to respond like Jesus, I think you have to ask yourself, what did Jesus do? Someone should put that on a bracelet. And what did he do? He came and he hurt with us. Can you imagine if Ahasuerus had decided to do that? 
Oh, wow, she isn't going to come? I wonder if I offended her. I wonder if she doesn't feel well. I wonder what happened. I'm going to go and ask. Honey, are you okay? Oh, and if I put you on the spot and made you feel weird? I'm sorry. Wouldn't have been a Hasuerus if he'd done that, but he would have been a better man. Jesus defied cultural expectations in showing compassion, empathy, sympathy. Ahasuerus is so self-centered and narcissistic, he probably thinks he is honoring his wife when he tells her she should come out and, and be ogled and paraded before everyone. After all, isn't that a great compliment to you and your beauty? Our culture does the same thing. More and more degrading and devaluing under the banner of empowering. Husbands, wives, parents, children, employees, neighbors, all of us can, because of sin, fail to recognize the image of God in the other person. And like Ahasuerus, we can see people only for what they do for us, and we can respond only in anger and, and overreaction if we see that they're not adding to our ease or they're hurting our reputation. But if we're going to be more like Jesus than Ahasuerus, we need to be careful the demands we put on people. He says to her, you're coming. Not, I'm going to invite you, I'm going to ask you, or, or maybe you and I could spend some time together later tonight. No, he just says, get over here now. Like Mortal Kombat, right? Get over here! That was, I, that's not in the notes. That was a deep cut. Listen, if we're going to be like Jesus, we need to remember everyone is hurting in their own way. Everyone is angry for reasons that to them seem perfectly logical. Everyone has their stuff, just like we do. Compassion, empathy, sympathy, whatever you want to call it, means I am going to try to understand and I am going to offer grace and love and mercy like Jesus did rather than I am going to stand back and make demands. And my friends, even churches can view people as tools, to a means to an end, numbers and not people, if we're not careful. And if you've been one of those people who's been made to feel that way, know that God sees you and is not indifferent to the suffering that others have caused you. If you've been objectified or belittled and wondered, like many who read the book of Esther, and undoubtedly Esther herself, where is God in this story? Remember, this is a story of God's providence, which is something that's often hard to see in the moment, but clear in hindsight. Vashti can't know the role she's playing in God's story. She can't know that by protecting her integrity and refusing to be reduced to an object, she will further God's plan to rescue his people and display his glory. She can't know that. She can't know that she probably, I think, is returned later to power. We don't know exactly the identity of Vashti, but when you read secular and, and uh, sacred history together, it seems to me that she comes back into power as queen mother during the reign of her son Artaxerxes. She can't know that yet, though. All she knows is that in this moment, she knows the right thing to do, and she's going to do it. She's not going to bow to the kind of king and the kind of culture that would belittle and objectify. She's going to go against the stream. Makes me think of the words of that great hymn, in the last stanza, This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died will be satisfied and earth and heaven be won. We don't serve the power-obsessed powerful narcissistic rulers of this age. We don't buy into the lies 
that objectifying and demeaning is empowering. Rather, we serve the true king. We serve him in faith. And even when we don't see his fingerprints all over every situation, we trust that his providence is at play. His plan is unfolding. We trust that he is at work and that in the end, we will see how. Heavenly Father, we just ask that you give us the sense of our own fallenness when we read a story like Esther and we are tempted to turn everyone into white hats and black hats and an old spaghetti western and say, oh, that Ahasuerus is the worst. Oh, that Haman is the worst. Rather, Lord, I pray that you would help us to see where some of their tendencies may be even hiding in our own hearts, that we might repent and turn to you anew, that as we read these things, we would be thankful that our king, unlike that king, is forgiving and faithful and merciful and full of grace and ready to forgive us when we confess, ready to restore us when we turn away ready to welcome us whenever we should want to enter his presence. Lord, we pray for a bit of the spirit of Queen Vashti, who knew that it might cost her her life, but decided to stand up for what was right to go against the flow. Lord, we pray that we would follow you even if we feel like we're the only ones doing it. We pray that we would follow you and know that even though we might suffer for it in the short term, you are there protecting us. You are there rewarding us. You are there with us every step along the way. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.